0: Hello and welcome to the Writers of the Future panel and let me first of all introduce all of our guest speakers. My name is John Goodman. I'll be the moderator, I'm the president of Galaxy Press and publisher of the Writers of the Future series. And then S.M. Sterling, Stephen Sterling, so brief introduction to yourself there. Okay, I'm a science fiction and fantasy
1: writer, started publishing in the early 80s, done uh, Dice the Fire, Island in the Sea of
0: Time, Black Chamber, and a bunch of other stuff. Good, and then Jody Lynn Nye.
2: Hi, I'm Jody Lynn Nye. I write science fiction and fantasy, mostly with a humorous bent. I've turned out over 50 books and over 170 short stories. I also teach the two-day writer's workshop here at Dragon Con, and a couple of my surviving victims, uh, I mean students, are here in the audience.
0: And Kevin J. Anderson.
3: I'm Kevin J. Anderson, and I've written a, a, the technical term is a poop load of books. That's the Dragon Con TV appropriate word for it. Um, A lot of Star Wars and X-Files and Batman and Superman. And I've written comics and lyrics for two rock CDs. And uh, and now I'm starting to do some fun film and TV stuff. I'm a a technical consultant on this. It's a minor movie called Dune that's coming out next month, Um, if it comes out next month.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, great. So, we're also recording this, this panel because we've got the Writers and Illustrators Future podcast, which will be broadcast on, and that reaches about 100 different countries um, around the world. So now what we're doing here is we're going to go over a little bit about what the Writers of the Future is and how it applies to uh, aspiring writers and artists. And then we open it up for question and answer to the, uh, the panelists for the last half hour. So the idea is to really give you an opportunity to, be, to ask questions from these seasoned authors. So, what it says here on the panel description, how do you become one of the 12 winners to be published in the annual anthology? Writers, of the Future Judges and bestselling authors discuss the contest, tips on story prompts, and short fiction. In the second half, enjoy Q&A. So, um, Kevin, you've been with us the, the longest, so how do you become one of the 12 winners?
3: Write a good story. No, write a story that's better than the other good stories.
0: That's, that's true. There are a lot of entries. We've got people that have been entering. One of our winners this year has been entering the contest for 20 years. We've had some that have been entering longer than that when they finally win. So one of the biggest things that people will say is don't give up. You know, keep on writing and, and definitely don't give up. Well, so, and
3: my, my, when I start, I, I've been entering this contest since it started in 1985. Yeah. Um, when I was a new writer, I, I've submitted to it and I've, but they dug up the records. I think I submitted 17 times as a new writer because I, I mean, the prize money is great, but I really wanted to go to this fantastic writer's workshop that each winner gets to go to. Um, and then I got disqualified, so I couldn't enter anymore. I got disqualified by selling a professional novel to a major New York publisher. So it's kind of a good way to get disqualified. (laughs) And I still really wanted to go to that writer's workshop. So now I help teach it and I get to go. So um, it's kind of like the question of, so you want to be an ice skater, how do you win an Olympic gold medal? Well, you get better than anybody else in the world.
0: And that's kind of the same thing. Good, and Jody? Not only write
2: an excellent story, but write one that is going to make us think. We've seen a lot of stories. The, the twenty, I think, twenty uh, professional judges on the yes. uh, writer side of, of the field, we've read things, we've written tons of things. Make us sit back and say, "Huh, oh, that's that's a new wrinkle on that." And the and that person has done it exceptionally well. The the ways to get ahead in in any field is to be first, best. Or different? Well, in this case, I suggest you be best and different. You can't be first. That uh, The contest is in its how many If year? We're
0: 30, in the 38th year 38th now.
2: 38th year. 38? Is, yes, yeah. isn't that shocking? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's wonderful because for people who want to enter writing contests who would like to get the recognition, the Writers of the Future contest is one of the few that is free to enter. I have seen so many contests that are, are supposedly very prestigious and will get you the attention of New York uh, editors, and they cost you anywhere from $10, 25 $50, $80 to enter for each story. But you can enter the Writers of the Future contest four times a year, and all for the price of emailing your... Not st- even now, because you, you have digital...
3: stamp, didn't you? I,
2: I thought about it and realized that uh, that is getting to be not a thing anymore. It's, it's much easier on everyone else, uh, and you don't have to worry about yours getting lost in transit or right. uh, providing a stack this high for the wonderful person who goes over the in, initial uh, read.
0: Yes, all but, the readers, first readers. But I
2: suggest submitting. If you have something that you have finished, that you love, let's see if we love it too. Send it to us. One of the biggest barriers is fear that people are afraid to send something into a, a contest because somebody might not like it. Yeah, but we might love it. Let us have that chance. Let us have the chance to see it.
0: Good. So with that, one of the things we want to talk about and is a very common um, at other panels that people are interested in is story prompts. You know, what are, what are you looking for in Writers of the Future? What types of stories? Because the stories that we have are geared towards uh, middle school on up audience there's there's no uh, profanity um, the sex is you know moderate to light if, so that's the audience we have is for like said middle school on up these are used in high schools as well as military so it goes all over the place so in terms of uh, like I said common questions is is on story prompts you all write a lot of, of short fiction or have written a lot of short fiction so uh, Steve, just from you then, anything on story prompts or things that you've used that helps inspire you? Because you've got several lines of stories that you've written, all diverse. So what what has worked good for you on story prompts? Well, that's sort of a, what gives you your ideas, a question. Um, the facile
1: answer to that is a mail-order house uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York, sends me them. Um, but frankly, they just sort of well up. I get ideas, I get glimpses of scenes, uh, characters, uh, situations, or something I'm reading will spark um, uh, the thought that, well, I could do something along those lines, but better. Um, and there's a sort of necessary degree of arrogance. You have to have to be a writer, sort of a shy exhibitionist. Um, thing is, ideas are cheap. Um, lots of people get ideas. Far fewer actually write finished stories. Um, I'm a natural novel-length writer. Um, and for me, writing a successful novella or short story is like jamming a cat into a Coke bottle without hurting it. Um, but it can be done. It just takes you know, application, learning the skills, and, uh, and then applying them. Um, one of the good things about the Writers of the Future contest is that it provides a venue for short fiction because there's a hell of a lot less than there used to be. And uh, it's, it's gotten harder since the 80s, which is when I sold my first short story. That was back in the antediluvian days of uh, hard copy manuscript submissions. I got a call from New York, uh, from Jim Bain, actually, uh, saying that he wanted to buy the story, which I did a little happy dance at, but that he thought the ending was ambiguous. And uh, I didn't think the ending was ambiguous, but what I would have crawled to New York over broken glass, pulling myself along with my lips at that point to sell. Um, so we talked around it for 10 minutes, and then I realized I hadn't sent the last page. <laughs> um, and you know, without the last page of the story, that ending was ambiguous. <laughs> so that was, that was easily solved. Um, and then how to make the story stand out so that, uh, so that it'll, it'll it tickle the judge's fancy. Um, that's a difficult question. I'm just getting involved in this on, on that side. Um, the thing is, writers read differently than than people who just read. Um, We see things that affect the reader, but unconsciously. That's one of the reasons it's difficult for a writer to go to the movies. You generally see the plot about uh, five minutes in and can predict the ending. If you don't, it's a pleasant surprise. But you see structure and technique in a way that ordinary readers don't. you know that's that's actually a drawback in some respects, because you're not seeing it the way that the, the target audience is. Uh, you have to be able to step back from that and see the, the gestalt, the overall impact of the story. And at least with judges in a competition, you can be reasonably cer- certain that they will read it. So um, just give it a try, finish it, send it in. Uh, you have to get used to rejection if you want to write, because you've got a lot of rejections. Uh, When I sold my first story, I had a party for my friends and we took all my rejection slips and put them in a World War II German helmet my father brought back from the late great unpleasantness and we burned them. So, And I had a lot of uh, rejection slips and the smoke alarm went off. But it was worth it.
0: Great. Judy?
2: As for story prompts, I read uh, the science news, for example. And I'll go over... Whatever they they have discovered at the moment, and say does that does that stir the imagination? Is that something that I can build on uh, or feel good stories or practically practically anything that I'm reading outside? I try not to look at the current disaster of the moment because I know that within about eighteen months after a disaster begins, there will be a rash of books and movies that will come out all about the same thing. This happened with Mount St. Helens. Uh, This this happened with um, a couple of floods. There have been a a number of times when Hollywood just ran ahead and said, yep, yep, that'll make really good movies and people will go. And, And still afterwards, people are going too soon, too soon. So I stay away from obvious things like that because I don't think that I'm going to say anything that is going to be original enough, that people aren't just going to say, oh God, not another one. So I look elsewhere. <laughs> and there are there are plenty of wonderful things. I'm also inspired by other people's stories. It, it's not unknown for writers to read someone else's work and say, yeah, but they didn't cover this part of it, and that's for me, or I can do it better than that, so I'll go this way with the story, whereas they went that way. Inspiration comes in so many different places. I used to tell people that I got my ideas from the same warehouse in Wahoo, Nebraska, that uh, David Letterman got his top ten lists. (laughs) It was handy. They're cheap. And uh, they'll deliver you a dozen or two at a time. So how can you go wrong with that? The problem is, as, as Steve quite rightly points out, finishing something. Once, once you get over the initial excitement of the inspiration, a lot of the time your energy flags, but that is what is going to set you apart as a professional from someone who is just noodling around with ideas. You write whether you feel like it or not, because you have a job. Your job is getting words done on paper in, in an order that is pleasing to a reader. Uh, your job is to entertain and never forget that. Primarily at the basis of everything, we are entertainers. And we want you to really enjoy what it is we wrote, even if we're writing something that scares the pants off you or creates angst so deep in your heart that you have to go out in the sunshine to remember that it's there. But there are so many other opportunities for you. But uh, inspiration is easy, work is hard, but you have to do the work too. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. <laughs> and Kevin,
3: white. Um, Writers, the, the thing we get asked most often by non-writers is, where do you get your ideas? And it's, it's like a cliche. And I have my, my I pull out of my pocket, my, my snarky response is, how do the rest of you stop them from coming? Mm-hmm. Because if your mind is wired as a writer, like everything you look at, oh, that's an idea, that's an And my problem is I'll never have time to write the, all the ideas that I have. Um, to follow up on what Jody said, that a lot of times Hollywood will, that will they'll read science news or they'll see a current event and they'll ask the question and stop there and make the movie out of it. Mm-hmm. Like Mount St. Helens blows up. Let's make a movie about something like Mount St. Helens blowing up. But as a writer, what we do is we ask the next question and the next question. And that's where the stories get Interesting. So instead of doing a story about Mount St. Helens blowing up, or the horrible Tommy Lee Jones volcano movie about L.A. erupting (laughs) in a volcano, (laughs)
2: um, Dante's Peak.
3: Dante's Peak wasn't terrible, but the volcano one in L.A. because the La Brea Tar Pits erupted was. (laughs) um, No really. But but so those came out. But. Where my publishing house is now publishing an anthology by Jeff Sturgeon called The Last Cities of Earth, where he's, and you've got a story in there, don't you? I'm
2: doing Chicago.
3: Um, He postulates, I mean, the super volcano in Yellowstone erupts and that disrupts civilization, the climate. So all of these stories are set after that about how civilization is rebuilding. So it's the next question. It's not the book about Yellowstone volcano erupting. It's the book about what happens after Yellowstone erupted. Um, one of the, the story prompts thing, This I told you about the, the wonderful workshop that the Writers of the Future winners, and, and this is like the best workshop I can ever imagine. I've, I've been a judge for 25 years or something, mm-hmm. right? And so I've sat in on it and helped teach it. Um, it is just the most incredible workshop, and it used to be run by the late, great Algis Budras, who was like one of the best writing teachers ever to walk the face of the mm-hmm. earth. And one of the most ingenious things that he did for these students is he had, I think it was a, a brown paper bag, and each student had to reach in, and it was filled with just doodads, odds and ends and random things, and they they would pull out something um, a pencil, a key, um, a door hinge. A of toy race car. A, to- a toy race car. And that was your thing. And you had to write a story that involved that thing by the end of the week. And you didn't know what it was you were pulling out when you reached it. And I'm, Doug Beeson, my co author, um, was a Writers of the Future winner way back when we all were younger. And he pulled out a, a door hinge. Like, I don't know where, why does Al just bring, walk around with door hinges in his bag? But he had a door hinge. And so he wrote this whole story about uh, an astronaut trapped outside of a space station because the airlock door hinge had been struck by a micrometeorite and it wouldn't open. And his air was running out and he couldn't get back inside. And and so that's that was the prompt of the little door hinge. And Doug published it
0: in Analog. Cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool on that. When... Um, one of the things on the creation of the Writers of Feature Contest, it was, it was created by Owen Hubbard in 1983, but in the 30s and 40s, he was one of the most prolific pulp fiction writers. And uh, he, he had a problem of enough magazines to write for, so that's why he adopted the various pseudonyms. He had 17 pen names he wrote with, and sometimes they have two or three of his stories in a magazine under different names because he just wrote so much. But that's one of the reasons why he really wanted to create this competition was for the aspiring writer to get that leg up because it, it is a difficult industry, uh, you know, there's a lot of talent out there, but what do you get yourself made known? And I know Dave Wolverton, who's now writes as Dave Farland, he was a grand prize winner in volume three, and that's when he editors came to, his, to the awards ceremony, and that's how he sold his first three-book series. Uh, Tom Doherty has been a speaker at our workshop, the publisher of, of Tor Books, and then Tony Weisskopf is a keynote speaker this year, she's the publisher of Bain Books so the whole purpose of this is to really provide that that helping hand to the aspiring writer and every aspect of the rise of future competition is free for the for the writers all funded by mr hubbard he put that into his will to continue funding that so all the winners when they're flown out to hollywood that's paid for by the contest the hotel this year we're staying at the roosevelt hotel that's paid for by the contest the big gala uh, awards event with usually about 30 media show up to cover the event because it's, it's a big deal so that's something and as, as Kevin has known to said multiple times, don't get used to it. <laughs> Your next book is not going to have an awards event like this. Um, but anyway, that's something that is, is really keen on this for the competition to be able to give that uh, assistance. We also created, um, at the start of the pandemic, the Online Writing Workshop, which is free to anybody to take us at Writersofthefeature.com that somebody can go to. It's uh, About a dozen videos uh, from judges and about ten Mr. Hubbard essays, and it walks you through how to write a short story. And the end of it, if you want to, you can actually submit to the Rise of the Future contest. And we've had like 5,000 people plus um, taking the course. And the podcast that this is going to be uh, airing on at at the end, and you can I'd all recommend you listen to it, and because we have. We just uploaded up podcast number one thirty nine. So each week I have a new uh, guest on. These three fine people have all been guests on on the podcast, um, but it reaches about a, it gets about a million listens each week on the on the podcast. So it's 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 quite popular, and the whole purpose is to provide those extra tips and assistance to the aspiring writer and artists. We have artists as well as um, writers as as guests. So, getting back to um, this, in, in general, in short fiction, because you commented that it's, um, there's fewer vehicles with your short fiction now, and I've seen more and more as people seem to have gotten into reading it. Some the short fiction seems to have been a bit on, on an increase on people listening. Short on audiobooks, there's a little bit more demand for that now. Any comments on the future of short fiction? I'll go with you, Jody, first on that one.
2: I think there will always be a place for short fiction because there are times when you don't have time to read something longer. Mm-hmm. And I think that people want a, a flavor, a taste of another world, another reality. But they don't want to commit to a novel. So I think that there will always be a place for it. Most of it is moving online because magazines, yes, indeed, there, there are fewer of them than, than there were mm-hmm. that you can actually pick up and read in paper. But a lot of people are going to... Uh, either published anthologies in as uh, as short story collections or online magazines because there 's absolutely no limit on the length of the story that you can have, and the writers of the future, unlike uh, most magazines altogether, will let you go up to seventeen thousand words and that 's enormous that that is I have written short stories that long. Um, But it's nice to know that there there is a place where someone will judge it and consider it for an award. I think that the future, yeah, we're moving online for that. There are other things in other countries. Uh, The Japanese have short stories on your phone that you can read while you're on the subway or um, in in transit someplace or or when you're taking a break. And Kindle, for example, has uh, Kindle Singles which are short stories that you can uh, buy individually. So I think that there, there are more and more opportunities coming. We haven't explored it all yet.
0: Right. And you, Kevin, as a publisher with uh, Wordfire Press, most of your novels, but what do you do with, with uh, short fiction?
3: Um, we do one or two anthologies a year, at, at least one that my grad students put together, and we get funding from uh, draft to digital for that. Um, we do occasional um, like single-author collections if it's a big-name author that I want to get um, on our list. But if you're just—okay, just before coming to this panel, I, as publisher, rejected a novel by a new writer. It was a really good novel. It was sent to me by a major New York agent— And everything about this novel was like, this is a really good book, it's funny, it's unusual, it's quirky. And then I started doing some investigation of the author. I I googled him, I looked on Twitter, I looked on Facebook. The guy has a Twitter account with 150 followers. He has no Facebook page at all. His blog was last updated in 2019. He doesn't go to cons, and he has no newsletter. I don't care how brilliant that novel is, the invisible man can't sell books. Mm-hmm. And the reason this is connected to short stories is all of you new writers, you need to start building up your newsletter list, your, your social media presence, your, build up your own little fan base because that's your platform. And what you can do with short stories is they can be what's called a reader magnet. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free short story, and you give them the free short story. Um, You can set up a Patreon account. You will get a free short story that nobody else gets to read but my Patreon supporters every month if you pay me 20 bucks or whatever their Patreon level is. I'm saying this because it's not what most people would think of when you write a short story, because you think of writing a short story and sending it to a magazine. Well, that's hard because there's almost no magazines anymore. Mm-hmm. There's a handful of online places. There are invitation-only anthologies where you might be lucky enough to uh, to do it. Um, but... If you write a short story and you submit it to Writers of the Future and it doesn't win, you still have a finished short story that you were proud enough of that you sent it in. So it's not wasted time. You can still say guys, sign up for my newsletter and you get this free short story. And then you write another one next month and if that still gets rejected somewhere, next month, get another free short story. It's not wasted. You're still building your audience. You're still building goodwill.
2: John, you can, uh, this is the thing I don't know. You can enter four times a year. Can you enter with more than one story per quarter?
0: No, it's one okay. story per quarter.
2: Okay, good to know.
0: Yeah, um, a note about... Uh,
1: when Elron uh, Ron Hubbard was writing for the magazines, there were hundreds of pulp magazines that printed short stories. There were specialized ones, there were like airship stories, um, uh, two-fisted boxing stories. Uh, authors in those days usually started with short fiction, and there were lots and lots of markets. They were ephemeral markets, they paid badly, sometimes they just collapsed and didn't pay you at all, but there were lots of them. And you could get a story out and it would be read. Um, These days, there's the three big science fiction magazines and invitation anthologies and online stuff of the sort Jody mentioned. Now, that's growing. It's not as bad as it was 10 years ago for short fiction, but it's still not nearly as accessible as it was in the heyday of the popes.
2: Yeah, you're not going to be able to feed your family.
1: Yeah. Um, Robert E. Howard... Was the uh, best-paid man in his in his town? Of course, it was cross plains in Texas during the depression, but he was still making a good living writing short fiction for the pulps. Um, that didn't last past the '50s, uh, and you know it's a pity. And I'm glad that the online markets are coming on. Uh, what you said about uh, about online presence and uh, and pushing yourself and that sort of thing. That's also a very good idea if you can do it. I'm a little handicapped there because I lose my temper easily. And Twitter is not a good place oh, to do it. Oh,
3: don't, don't talk politics. Whatever you do, just don't talk politics yeah. on
1: social media. But someone's being wrong on the internet! Um, yeah, so you, you've got to be careful about that.
2: Uh, one of the things that I suggest to my students, and as I said, a couple of them are here, have two pages. One of them is friends only, not friends of friends, just friends. That's, that one you can vent on. Your public account should be about you, about your, your cats, about your grandchildren, and occasionally, oh, about other things that you like, like I loved this movie or I read this book by this person and you should read it too. And one out of every 10 at the most, maybe one out of every 20. By the way, I have a book coming out in March and I'm, here's the cover and I'm really proud of it. Other than that, you should be a person. Uh, yesterday, Alexi Vandenberg was talking to us about creating your brand. You are your brand. Your stories, your, your books are your product. But in the end, people will remember something about you if it's a negative thing. If they want to remember something positive, be, be bland, <laughs> be entertaining, be fun, be generous. Provide them with free short stories. Well, don't,
3: don't be bland. Be interesting oh. in a non-inflammatory
0: way.
2: Okay. That's yeah, just remember that
0: the internet is forever. Didn't used to be that way 20 years ago before the internet. You could say something inflammatory, and incendiary, and then people would forget and just move on. But if you do that and you put it onto your social posts, where it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, your blog, whatever like that, it stays. Mm-hmm. And... So, 20 years down the road, when you've now got yourself a career and someone goes back, because I see it all the time in Hollywood. Someone goes back 20 years and then there goes James Gunn's career. You know? or,
2: or even less. Um, a, a man just lost a prestigious television job because of 10 year old uh, podcasts. Yeah. And quite rightly, but unfortunate.
0: Yeah, so just realize that if you can do that, you can be responsible for it. So, at some point down the road, what you think is fun or self or something like that might not prove to be such a, a, a good call down the road, especially if you have a, a sincere desire to make it as, as a professional writer. Because as much as you can side with somebody, there's the other side. There's also potential clients that will no longer be interested in, your, in what you have to offer. All right, so on the, um, on the subject of short fiction itself, is there any validity still to that jumping stone from short fiction to novels or you know, of, of getting that start?
2: I would say no, except that it makes really good practice for writing and for creating a plot, developing characters, doing world building. But there are people who are natural short story writers and there are people who are natural novelists. Not everybody can do both. Mm-hmm. Right. And it is not, uh, if it was the truth back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that people looked for novel writers or said, yes, uh, write a novel for me. I see your short story fiction and I think it's great. If, if it was ever a, an avenue, I don't believe it is at all now. Mm-hmm. Write your novels, submit them.
0: So basically it's good practice for story creation. Kevin, what's your... Thought on that.
3: Well, I mean, when, when I was starting out, that was that was the career path. You learned how to write short stories and then you graduated to novels. But like like Steve, I'm a natural novelist. That's how I tell stories. I can do short stories, and I have done a lot of them, but and I published over 130 of them, but nobody ever noticed my short fiction. They noticed my novels when they came out. Um, and I don't like writing short fiction as much. If I'm going to dive into something, I want to just go whole hog and I want to uh, develop all the characters and go. But, but you know, just writing novels isn't a handicap for even entering in Writers of the Future because he's a, he's a new fantasy author with only two novels published, but uh, his name is Patrick Rothfuss. <laughs> uh, and he did a piece of his second uh, Kingkiller book, as his Writers of the Future entry. There was sort of like a self-contained part of the novel that worked as a story, Um, a guy getting his vengeance, and he sneaks into a gypsy camp and poisons their stew and kills everybody, which, you know, a comedy, obviously. Um, And he submitted that, and that was a piece of his novel. And um, so you can still, and I've got lots of my big novels that I could maybe figure out a little detachable
0: piece. Uh, One plus it, on that, though, was he met this guy named Kevin J. Anderson, who introduced him to his agent, and that's, that is actually because of you that he made his that, that first
3: well, connection. Well, because I, I got to know him at the Writers of the Future workshop, and he's a geeky fanboy, and we were talking about the same comics that we like to read and the same music we like to listen to, and he sat with me at the banquet, and he was a really interesting guy, so on the plane flight home, I read his story... Oh, and he was talking about this fantasy trilogy that he was, get this, all finished with. And uh, and I read the short story, which I knew was pe- a piece of it, and I thought it was fantastic. So I said, you really are done with all three of these books, right? Oh, yes, they're all completely finished. Yeah. And so I had him uh, contacted an agent, and, and the agent sold it to Daw Books and And that's another really interesting thing because they had this new, really good book by this new, really good fantasy author that they were going to put in as a first novelist slot. But another major author for that publisher didn't meet his deadline. So they didn't have the book to publish in the lead fantasy slot. So they went, well, let's give this kid a chance. And they stuck his book in the lead slot. And that's how it took off. So publishing is a completely, like, randomized, cover-your-eyes-and-throw-a-dart-at-the-wall kind of thing. And sometimes it works.
2: (coughs) You stick your hand in the paper bag, and sometimes you come up with a really wonderful thing. And
1: sometimes you come up with a dead fish. (laughs) Yeah, um, I published my first book. I thought I had a commitment for more. I was beavering away on the second book. Nothing happened. The editor who would bought my first book moved to a different uh, publishing house. I called back. The new editor said, oh, we got some Arthur C. Clarke reprint, rights, so we're bumping some of our mid-list. Call me in a year. (laughs) Which you can imagine was not the best news I'd ever had.
2: That's a dead fish. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, with respect to, um, because you mentioned about publishing with Daw and then uh, Kevin, you're an indie author, what's uh, the difference now for an aspiring writer, should they move look towards trying to get the the major publishing contracts or look more for uh, indies?
3: Well, should we have steak tonight or Chinese food or Italian or, you know. Because there's a lot of
0: misinformation about, out there. On it. So I'm, well, I, I well, said I mean, that it's open question well, like well, that. Well, th- see, or the
3: thing, th- thing th- is, is that it's, when Jody and Steve and I all started out, publishing was like this big river and you could all follow the river. Mm-hmm. And now publishing is like the Mississippi Delta and Louisiana bayous, that there's a million different ways to do it and there's a million different ways to succeed at it and a million different ways to fail. And indie publishing is great, but you, anybody can publish their own book.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You might sell four copies of it if you can twist the arms of your relatives. Um, and anybody can send a book to New York. The, the problem with traditional publishing is the timescale.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That if you're a brand new author and you send your book into Bain Books, which is one of the only people that will actually read slush pile from unknown authors that just comes in.
2: This means unagented. Yeah,
3: unagented. If you're a new author, here's my book and you mail it into Bain Books. They will actually read it. Their average time for response is about three years. Well, if you're writing four books a year, it's kind of tough to wait three years for the first one. Mm-hmm. And then traditional publishing, does they don't really know how to publish more than one or two books a year from even their major authors. Mm-hmm. There are lots of writers now who can write faster than that. And there are lots of readers when they lock, lock onto a series, they want to like binge watch the Netflix series. Mm-hmm. They want seven books that they can just chew right through. Mm-hmm. And there are many indie publishers and indie authors who are very successful at doing a book a month. Now, they are short books, like 50,000 words or so, mm-hmm. whereas a, a Patrick Rothfuss is probably 250,000 words. Mm-hmm. But we the readership is out there. Let me step back. The readership has always been out there for this binge reading, and publishers didn't really, publishers other than Harlequin romances didn't really understand that there were these voracious, they're, they're called whale readers. They just swim along and scoop up the krill. That they, they're not, they don't want to wait 14 years for the next Game of Thrones novel. They want to wait a month for the next novel in their series. And if you can write that fast and you can produce a series and keep doing it, you can build up an audience. I had dinner last night with one of uh, my my writer friends, Um, I kind of mentored him for a while, who is doing very well writing, and I am not making this up, dinosaur harem novels. (laughs) <laughs> no, dragon, dragon harem right, yeah. novels. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> As if that's and he says, okay, he's got 23 in the series right now. They, the first, They come out and they earn about $5,000 when they come out in sales. And then because he keeps putting a new one out in the series and a new one out in the series, they keep backlisting. And so he earns about $500 a month from each one of his titles. Wow. So 5000 when a new one comes out every month,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and 500 from each title in the backlist every month, he's pulling in almost $300,000 a year from writing di- Dragon Harem novels. I didn't really want to ask him what a Dragon Harem <laughs> novel was, but it's because they're fast and the people just want the next one, and they want the next one, they want the next one. I bet These, they're, they're not going to wait.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry? So they're, I bet they're, they're blistering hot. <laughs> well, could be. Could be.
2: Actually, I have a friend who is in the romance industry, and quite a lot of them do something very similar. She writes a novel every three months, but in the meantime, she is also putting out novellas and short stories and character sketches and other kinds of content. She is always publishing more content while at the same time she is producing complete, full-length novels. And this way she keeps the, the maws of the beast fed, and her fans are happy, and she gets to have the time to look over her novels and be happy with the way that they are at the same time that she's producing the short story. She's very prolific, and she maintains what she calls a street team of people who are reading her things and then talking them up, themselves. So it's not just her. It's not just her voice. It's several other people who are doing this for her. She used to have groups that went into bookstores and and left uh, bookmarks and talked to the buyers and talked to the uh, community affairs coordinator. That has kind of dried up as as the number of bookstore chains has dried up. But the internet is still there for her her fans and her, her now online street team to talk her up. But she is always producing something new she's always giving them something else in her world to remind people that there will be another novel in a few weeks
0: yeah. just so, one second while we're while we finish off this here if anybody has any questions um you want to come up just queue up here so we can then just uh run th- do we do it like that okay so while we're finishing up here anybody have any questions raise your hands she'll bring the the microphone to you, and then we'll finish off what Jody's saying, and then we'll do that. You made any questions for any of the, uh, the judges? Okay, gentlemen in the back. Okay, sorry, go ahead, Jody. I, I chopped you off, because I wanted I to get think Steve the... was gonna say something, no?
2: It, it, it's fine,
0: I, okay. I, it, it's well, we... always,
2: always keep writing, always keep getting content out there. Uh, if, if you don't have a, an, an online presence, find one, establish one. You should have a web webpage, uh, keep it up to date. And uh, as, as Kevin says, make sure they know you're still there. Yeah.
1: I post sample chapters of my books as I write them. Uh, I figure anyone who reads six chapters on my website is going to buy the book. <laughs> and you know that's actually worked out rather well. Um, in the, uh, vanity presses, as they used to be called, used to be the kiss of death. It was the mainstream publishers or, or virtually nothing, unless you were selling five copies to your relatives. Um, that's, that's deeply changed. I've published something uh, independently last year myself. So, and the mainstream press market has gotten smaller as the companies consolidate. They maintain different print lines often, but that it's now just one editor, and editors are chronically underpaid and overworked. So the, that's a narrowing spout.
2: They are also losing the ability at the editorial level to make a buying decision. It's going up into marketing and to higher levels. Yeah. So the editor that used to be able to say, yes, I will buy your six-book series is now unable to do so. They have to go and fight for you. It used to be that there was a meeting that they had with marketing once a week or once a month. Now it has got, uh, come out of their hands. The suggestions that they made uh, are, are going to be completely out of their hands. They're going to get the word yes or no. And so they're on tenterhooks as much as the author is.
1: Yeah, and it's been passed up the line to MBAs who haven't read any fiction except when they were assigned it since they were 19. Okay, good.
3: Well, but I, I want to do a quick one. To what Jody was just talking about really reinforces the other thing she said about you building your own brand. That what's happening now is I, Kevin Anderson, am my brand. Jody Lanai is her brand. SM Sterling is his brand. I used to have these terrible fights, because I was published by Bantam Books and HarperCollins Books and Orbit Books and and, um, uh, uh, Del Rey, Rey, Ace, Ace whatever. And they would not let you promote any books by any other publisher. And so when I'm on a Dune tour, they didn't want me to talk about my Star Wars books. And when I'm on an X-Files tour, I couldn't talk about my Batman book even though the person who comes in for the X-Files book might buy the Batman book, or they come in for the Star Wars book and they might buy the Dune book. Oh no, that's a different publisher, you can't talk about it. Well, screw you, this is all my books, and I have my fans and the, the street teams and the novellas and everything else that connects. So we've now, even traditionally published authors, have taken on this you know what, I'm my own brand, and I'm going to build my fan base, and I'm going to build my newsletter, and I'm going to build my, my uh, reader magnets by giving away a novella, which is the side story in my novel that my fans might want to read. This is not something that traditional publishers ever did. So the indie, the, what used to be called Vanity Press, like, like Steve said, was The Kiss of Death, but the indie authors now are the only ones who are obsessively doing A-B testing and running sample ads and, and doing marketing mm-hmm. strategies that, in traditional publishing, they're basically now deciding how to invent a better VHS tape.
1: Mm-hmm. Good point.
3: Indie authors are coming up with all kinds of things that nobody in New York would ever try.
1: Yeah, uh, the traditional publishing is actually sort of moribund. Um, it's falling further and further behind. You used to be able to rely on the publisher to promote your book. Not anymore. Uh, you might alas. get an ad in
2: Locus. Hmm? You might get an ad in Locus.
1: Yeah. yeah. Which has 400 people
0: subscribing to it. These yeah. days, yes. Okay, I've
1: 5,000 people on my list, sir. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah, so in the back then, let's go ahead and give, send me your name and then ask your question, sir. Hi, my name is Robert
3: Turner. Uh, my question is, uh, how, how does the panel feel about uh, using short stories to uh, begin a novel and then kind of weaving it all together.
2: A short story is its own plot, and while you could probably, as Patrick Rothfuss did, uh, have it stand alone, once you've completed the short story, you have you have tied off that energy. So you would have to have left something open to continue on into a novel. Uh, There are people who write short stories that are joined together, and they all uh, follow a a plot of their own, but if they can stand alone, you are explaining your world again and again, because if if it can stand alone, it means that you have to explain your world. And sometimes that means explaining your magic system all over again, or where they are, and that can lead to a lot of repetition. So you would be doing a lot of editing if you took a host of short stories and put them together as a novel, because you would be going in and editing out those repetitions.
1: Yeah, that's a serious problem. Um, episodic novels are easier to do mainstream because you just don't have to redo the world building and stuff the way you do in genre fiction. Anybody else have a question?
0: Yes, up front here. State your name and ask your I'll question, please. Hear the giant lights in my okay. face. Hi, uh,
1: my name is TJ. Uh, you had mentioned that you tend to uh, try to keep it more like
3: PG as far as profanity and sexual content, things like that. What about like the darkness of the tone? Like, do you like. We do accept to, dark uh,
0: fantasy is fine.
3: Oh, yeah, but like, if it gets like super like grim super and Super okay. okay.
0: Yeah. Any we've
3: other... had some of those. What's that? Oh, we've had some of those. I mean, like, really bleak post apocalyptic, grim, depressing stories. I mean it's
0: quite a few, I, it's
3: not what I like to read for fun, but but I mean you can you can certainly do that. Um and and when you say no profanity, I think there's still like some you they can say damn or something. Yeah damn it's, it's just not, the um, uh, we we don't want this really grim post apocalyptic serial killer ghost saying Shucky darns
0: <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Any questions? Right behind you, Emily. Your name and the question.
3: Hi, I'm Marshall. Um, What most excites you seeing something out of a slush pile that catches your eye? What's the most exciting thing that'll um, make it stand out from the rest of the competition?
2: The first, best, or different. Uh, Try to approach, if if you're doing a, a same old trope, say a vampire story, let's see something different. Let's have a different approach to it. Anything can be fresh and new if, if you don't follow the same old... Uh, if you don't follow the crowd, take a look at something different. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I once uh, sat in on my, my friend's art class. She was teaching. And she had a load of things on the table. And she said, I want people to draw what they see here. And most people were drawing the these little sculpture in the middle or the grapes or the oranges. There was one fellow who was... He was painting the shadows that fell on the wall from the lights that were projected against the fruit. He had a really different way of approaching things. You can do that too. Uh Kevin?
3: Um, When Algis Budras was teaching, he also, I mean, I learned a lot from this guy. And what he would do is, is he's an editor, he's reading stuff, and as he would read, he would just draw a line across the, the page. And that was the dreaded Algis Budras line. And that was the spot where he decided to stop reading. And sometimes that was after the first paragraph.
1: Mm-hmm. Sometimes
3: it was on page three. There was some, like like if your story opens up that he he woke up and didn't know who he was. Eh, we're just done. <laughs> we're just done. Uh, we don't want to read that one anymore. Um, or or the typo or the. Um, I mean, there's mechanical stuff, like if, you're, if it's grammatically incorrect and it's filled with typos, we just don't want to read it anymore because that does not mark any work. professionalism. Um, but there are, if, and I'm sorry for the MFA English people, and, and I have an MFA in English, sorry, but do not write a story in second person.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Preferably do not write a story in present tense. That's all artsy and precious, and I'm sure you got a good grade in it, but it's not what anybody wants to read.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had one in the Writers of the Future, and I thought that it was excellently well done. It was uh, by Vita Cruz, and but it's a gimmick. Second person is a gimmick. Present tense is a gimmick, and especially don't bounce about between tenses because it will drive not only your editors crazy, but it will drive readers crazy because they don't know when they are, and they need to do that. You need to set them in a place so that you can tell your story. Don't keep making it such a mystery that they put your story down just out of frustration. Yeah,
1: the, uh, the reader is not under any obligation to do your work. That's something to keep in mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Ideally, they shouldn't be conscious that they're reading at all.
2: Isaac Asimov had that gift of being able to put a story directly from the page into your head because his story, his style was so transparent.
0: Who's that? Asimov. Yes. Yeah. Anybody else? Any questions? In the back again.
3: I was wondering if you would uh, speak just a moment about uh, the uh, flow of dialogue and, uh, and, and how to take that.
1: Uh, that is a difficult thing to do, because written dialogue can't be like what people actually say. Um, one of the good things to do is just eavesdrop on people talking. But you can't do that, you can't just use that directly, because people's ordinary speech is full of lacunae, uh, hesitations, ums, repetitions. Uh, it's tolerable in, in in speech, casual speech. But if you put it right down on the page, it's unreadable. So you have to get the impression of actual speech. Um, it has to be not stilted or, or um, obviously composed, but it can't be actual speech. It just has to feel like actual speech once it's off the page, through the eyes, and into the brain.
2: Conversation is not dialogue, and dialogue is not conversation. Mm. Your dialogue needs to mean something to the story. It can't just be a filler.
3: Yeah. I once had a really embarrassing situation where I did an interview for a a reasonably well-known magazine. I think it was like Starlog magazine or Mm. something like that. And the interviewer said, it's okay if I record this. He said, yes, record it. So we rec- he recorded it, and I did this interview, and I sounded like an absolute idiot in the article because he transcribed exactly every word that I said, including the ums and the repetitions and whatever. And I went, no interview does that. They make me sound like a, what I said, not what I like, actually said. <laughs> what and- I meant. Uh, well, I mean, this, this was just like, like well, there we go. Uh, and this was, I'm reading this going, you don't transcribe um and then stop the sentence. I mean.
2: Was he a court reporter at one time? I, I don't,
3: I, I just read this and I went, man, I sound like a moron. Well, maybe Damn. I do anyway, but that was, that was very embarrassing because I thought that
1: reporters were supposed to clean up the dialogue. and They are. That's one, that's yes. part of the job. Yeah. You know, being literal is not the same thing as being honest or true. Um, if If you transcribe dialogue precisely, you're not getting the effect of the dialogue on the person who's listening to it. Print is a different medium from speech, and it requires different rhythms and conventions.
0: Good. Anybody else? Any questions?
1: How many
3: of you in this room have entered the Writers of the Future contest?
0: Two, How many three, three. it's well, wow. four more to go. Then, so just in case um, you're unfamiliar, this is the this is the most recent volume of Writers of the Future. It was re, the volume 36. Volume 37 releases um, November 2nd, and um, it public we published 12 new writers and 12 artists uh, for the first time, and uh, Now we're well over 700 winners over the years, and what we have up here is, if you're interested, these are the the rules for entering the writer. If you also have friends that are artists, we've got the rules for the Illustrator Contest as well. They're both, it's a um, same competition, just different judges, and what happens is that the, the winners of the Illustrator Contest are um, given the, the winning story, short story, And then they illustrate that and it's also published in here too, so it's a great way for illustrators to get a launch for their career. Uh, We also have, uh, we're in, uh, our booth is booth 1413, it's the first floor over there. That You can get get a free uh, poster of this and check out more. We have more information about the contest if you're interested in that. Um, Otherwise I really want to thank all three of you for being on this panel, it's been great. And again, this will be on the Riders of the Future podcast in a few weeks. And if you've not listened to it, I highly recommend you uh, you listen to it. We've got a lot of great guests and a lot of great information about this as well. Thank you very much.
3: And for Thank those you. of you, for those of you who want to go over to the dealers' room, uh, Jody and I and, and a bunch of other authors, Jim Butcher and and Dave Butler. Are at twenty-seven something sixteen? Yes,
2: yeah, you can't in miss back it in because second. you can see 20, our faces. It's a on.
3: giant, giant thing with jo- Jody's poster and my poster up there. So it's the Bard's Tower. Come over and get some books signed. Yep.
0: yep. Again, we've got the
3: flyers here
1: if you're interested in that.
0: Thank you. Yep.
2: I've got to go and, over there now.
1: And I just want to say that the Writers of the Future thing is really worthwhile from the as as a, a help to the field. <laughs> you know, it's necessary. Do it.